Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Eight Hascom Mistakes You May Be Making and How to Fix Them, presented by J.J. Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, an associate editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I will moderate today's presentation. First, we'd like to thank you all for joining us, and on behalf of the National Safety Council's employees are currently working away from the office, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first, there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box on the left-hand side of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Please feel free to ask your question at any time during this presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. After this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Finally, our sponsor, J.J. Keller, has generously provided slides to download, and you can find them under the widget titled Related Content. With that, let's introduce our speakers. Lisa Newberger is an editor at J.J. Keller, specializing in workplace safety and environmental topics, focusing primarily on hazardous waste. She is the lead editor for J.J. Keller's Environmental Alert Newsletter and the Comprehensive Environmental Compliance Manual, which helps employers negotiate the complex regulatory landscape. Our next speaker is Tricia Hotkovich, an EHS editor who provides content for safety and environmental-related publications on subjects such as HASCOM, HASWOPR, bloodborne pathogens, spill prevention, control and countermeasure, Title III of the Superfund Amendments and Reauthorization Act, signs and labels, and written plans. Again, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in to this presentation. Lisa, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, thanks so much, Alan. And thank you everyone for joining us today. Trisha and I are really thrilled to be here uh, to talk about some you know, exciting concepts with, with, uh, with HASCOM. Uh, before we, we get uh, a whole lot further, I just want to tell you uh, today's webcast is sponsored by the J.J. Keller Hascom Chemical Safety Management Service. And with this service, you can get help from J.J. Keller experts to manage your chemical inventory and your SDS library, ensure proper labeling, and, you know, save you a lot of time. And it really does give you confidence that it's done right and that you're in compliance. And the service provides support and guidance for these core areas of your HASCOM program. So on behalf of the J.J. Keller HASCOM Chemical Management Service, welcome to today's webcast. Now, today we'll be looking at OSHA's Hazard Communication Program. We'll start with a broad overview. So what are the basic elements of the program? who's covered, and what exceptions apply. And then we're really going to look closely at what OSHA is citing employers for. In other words, what are they getting wrong under HASCOM, and how often does OSHA cite this program? And you know, it may surprise you how often OSHA cites the program. And of course, as promised, 
Uh, we will look at eight mistakes you may be making under HASCOM and show you some good ways to go about fixing those issues. All right, so first, we'd like to know a little bit more about you and why you're joining us today. What issues do you struggle with? What are your biggest challenges with HASCOM? And know that you can uh, choose more than one answer. Um, so, you know, is it keeping track of chemicals in general? Is it maintaining your FDSs? Is it understanding the requirements of HASCOM? Uh, is it proper labeling of your containers? Or do you have another major concern, another challenge that, uh, that we did not put in our poll? Um, so if you do, feel free to enter that um, other concern that you have in the question and answer box. And, um, you know, that'll give us a sense of where to take this webcast today, too. All right, with that, let's see what sort of answers we got. So we have keeping track of chemicals, 38.1% of you. Maintaining the FCS is 41.1%. Understanding the requirements of HASCOM, almost 45% there. Proper labeling, uh, 30%. And then other, we've got almost 12%. So we'll be checking that to the question and answer box to look at those other issues you had. So it looks like, you know, uh, understanding the requirements uh, seems to be the biggest challenge, but, you know, those challenges for maintaining SDSs and, you know, your chemical inventory, keeping track of chemicals, those are all big issues for you, too. So rest assured we'll be addressing all of those things as we go forward today. So in January, a transit system in Connecticut was cited by OSHA for HAZCOM violations, and that was for failing to inform and train bus drivers on the hazards of a powerful disinfectant spray that was being used to disinfect the buses due to COVID-19. The use of this particular disinfectant and its hazards were new to the company. According to complaints made by the driver's union to OSHA, the disinfectants were being used so often they didn't even dry before the bus would go out again. So drivers were exposed to the chemical and they had difficulty focusing, they experienced rashes and breathing issues and headaches and eye irritation. So that means even if training on the chemical hazards and protective measures was provided, it was likely not effective. And all hazard communication training must be effective. Now, of course, the employer can contest this citation and the penalty, but this violation shows you that this is the kind of thing that HASCOM is designed to prevent. Employers, uh, employees not being sufficiently trained so that they know how to properly use the chemicals in their workplaces. And it also shows you where an employer you know, was really trying to do the right thing, and that was disinfect commonly touched surfaces to protect drivers and the public from COVID-19 but the employer forgot about the HASCOM requirements that also apply to hazardous chemicals. Today, we're going to stick with the terms HASCOM or hazard communication standard. But this program also is often referred to as HCS or sometimes GHS. Now, in 2012, the standard was aligned with the United Nations Globally Harmonized System of Classification of Labeling of Chemicals, or GHS for short. Now, the revised standard uses harmonized hazard classifications found in the older third edition of the GHS and uses standardized label and safety data sheet, or SDS, 
formats and elements called for in the GHS. Now, just a note here that OSHA just recently told us it plans to post, post a proposed rule in the, the Federal Register on February 16th uh, to revise the HAVCOM standard again. We expect it to affect chemical manufacturers and importers and distributors the most, but it's also going to address topics like combustible dust and small container labeling that really up until now OSHA is only addressed through standard interpretation letters um, and not actually in the regulation itself. Tricia, did you have anything you wanted to add about that uh, new proposed rule we're expecting? Hi, everyone. This is Tricia Hudkevich. Uh, thanks uh, for everyone uh, to join us today. Um, yeah, there, this, this, the rough draft, the pre-publication version was some 800 pages. It's chock full of, of changes. Of course, these are all proposed. It has yet to be finalized. Um, but what, some of the big ones, um, they're going to revise the trade secret disclosure requirements to allow on the safety data sheet to allow those chemical manufacturers to uh, claim those concentration ranges as trade secrets. So your, your safety data sheets are going to change. Oh, there are other changes in the safety data sheet also. A uh, number of new definitions, a number of new classifications, new hazards to worry about. Um, and one of the big ones I think is kind of interesting is that uh, there's a thing called um, uh, released for shipment. So when chemical containers have been released for shipment, they're awaiting future distribution, they're sitting in a warehouse somewhere, OSHA is not going to require the manufacturer importer to relabel them when suddenly new information comes along. They'll require the manufacturer importer to simply send along an updated label. So that relabeling, you can imagine, is, is quite a burden. So a uh, big change there, and also, as Lisa said, small containers. There are a number of new flexibilities, new allowances for small container labeling. Um, well, it's just, it's an exciting rule, and I'd be happy to answer any questions today. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, thanks, Tricia. So as Tricia had pointed out, it's a proposed rule, and so we're really not going to dive into the weeds on that today. We're going to talk about what you have to do right now for HASCOM, and probably, you know, at least for the next year or two, uh, these will be uh, in place because uh, to finalize a rule takes a long time. So just keep that in mind, too. Now, today... Uh, before we go any further, I'm sure you're wondering about which mistakes that we're going to be focusing on today. So here's the list in one slide, uh, and you can see that it runs the gamut across the HASCOM program. Now, we'll be talking about all of these different mistakes throughout our webcast today, but here's the one slide where you can find them if you're looking for kind of a list of that. All right, and with that, I'm going to turn things back over to Tricia. Okay, thank you, Lisa. Excellent. So here are the changing the slide here. Definitions. Uh, the HASCOM standard contains many definitions already, and it's important to understand them. But three that we're going to call out today um, are uh, hazardous chemical. So a hazardous chemical is classified to have all the hazards listed there on the slide. A hazard class is the nature of the hazard. For example, flammable solid or carcinogen. A hazard category is a division within each hazard class. So for example, a flammable liquid, that's a class, 
the, the categories or divisions of that would be extremely flammable liquid or, and vapor, highly flammable liquid and vapor, just flammable liquid and vapor, and then combustible liquid. So you can see there, there are divisions within each class. All right, next slide. Okay, so the HASCOM standard applies to any employer who has employees that will be exposed to a hazardous chemical on the job. It applies to general industry, maritime, construction, and it covers chemical manufacturers and importers and employers. Now, any employer in the industries that I described with one employee and one hazardous chemical is covered. The HASCOM standard covers any chemical which is known to be present in the workplace in such a manner that employees may be exposed under normal conditions of use and in a foreseeable emergency. Most chemicals used in the workplace have some hazard potential, and, and so they will be covered by the rule unless exempted. The chemical that is not hazardous is not covered, and if there is no potential for exposure to workers, then the chemical is not covered by the standard. There are HASCOM exemptions. Uh, we have not listed them all on the slide, so if you turn to 1910.1200 paragraph B, as in boy, you can see them all. But uh, under the exemptions, HASCOM does not apply to articles. An article is a manufactured item that is not a fluid or a particle. It, is, or it has a function dependent on its shape or design, and it does not release more than a very small quantity of a hazardous chemical under normal conditions of use, and it does not pose a physical hazard or health risk to employees. We have some examples listed there, ink pens, tires, um, uh, marbles, you name it. Um, usually it's a solid there um, that does not pose um, a, a, hazardous, uh, a hazard during normal conditions of use. Now, someone asked about consumer products. Consumer products are exempted under certain conditions. For instance, a worker who occasionally uses window cleaner to clean his or her office window would be using that product as an ordinary consumer. That use is exempt under HASCOM. But a worker who is expected to clean all of the office windows using window cleaner would have an exposure that's greater in frequency and duration than an ordinary consumer. And so the consumer product is, in that case is not exempted and would be covered by HASCOM. HASCOM coverage exists, but it is limited for two operations, for laboratories and operations where chemicals are only handled in sealed containers. And when you boil uh, those requirements down, the loophole there is that these employers in those operations do not have to have a written HASCOM program or a list of chemicals. Um, but caution there, labs still have to have a written program, but it's a different program under a different regulation. It's called the Chemical Hygiene Plan. All right, Lisa. Okay, thanks, Tricia. All right, so here is HASCOM boiled down as to its basic components. Now, today we're really only talking about HASCOM as it applies to employers. So we're not going to be talking about chemical manufacturers or distributors of hazardous chemicals. They have additional requirements. So today we'll be talking about employers who have employees exposed to hazardous chemicals. 
and those employers have to identify and list hazardous chemicals in their workplace, implement a written HAZCOM program, maintain safety data sheets, or SDSs, and communicate hazard information to employees. And we'll be talking about all the different ways to do that as we go along today. Now, these are the numbers from 2019. And you can see where three of OSHA's top 10 serious violations were related to HAZCOM. You can see that missing or inadequate HAZCOM written program was the number one serious violation for general industry. Next is missing or inadequate measures to provide hazard information to employees or provide proper training. And then finally, there's the failure to adequately keep or maintain SDSs that came in at just under 500 violations. So this shows that there are many areas in HAZCOM where OSHA is going to look at your program for compliance with the HAZCOM standards. Now breaking it out a little further, here's OSHA's list of top serious violations that's covering only 1910 subpart D, and that's for those toxic and hazardous substances. HAZCOM, of course, is 1910.1200. And here we see the top three from the last slide, plus the addition of not having an SDS available for each hazardous chemical and for non-GHS-style in-house labels, not providing both the product identifier and general hazard information on the label. All right, and with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Tricia. Thank you, Lisa. So, all right, so that brings us to our first mistake. Um, if you look up OSHA citations for 1910.1200, paragraph E1, you'll see that a citation says, the employer did not develop, implement, or maintain at the workplace a written hazard communication program which describes how the criteria specified in 1910.1200 F, G, and H will be met. Okay, so what does that mean? Paragraph F covers the labeling requirements. Paragraph G covers the safety data sheets. And paragraph H contains the requirements for informing employees and employee training. So unless exempted, employers must have a written program with all that information if they have one or more covered employees. Okay, so the coordinator, we suggest that you have a coordinator with overall responsibility for developing the chemical inventory, organizing the SDSs, uh, setting up employee training, updating files on chemicals present in the workplace, and processing any requests for information from employees and OSHA. The coordinator should know how the program was implemented through careful documentation and be able to answer questions from OSHA. And the person there can also designate uh, the identity of staff members um, that are responsible for particular activities, such as training. So this person coordinates, doesn't have uh, all the duties, could designate others to do parts of this program. The HESCOM program is a written record of what your company has done and will do to comply with the HESCOM standard. It does not have to be long and complicated. It tells your employees and OSHA what you are doing to comply with the standard. It should include the items listed on the slide, a list of the product identifiers of the hazardous chemicals present in the workplace, 
a designation of persons responsible for ensuring labeling, both in-plant containers and shipped containers, if any, a description of any in-plant labeling system you use, a description of employee HAVCOM training provided, uh, your procedures to review and update label information when necessary, your methods to inform employees of chemicals or uh, chemical hazards of non-routine tasks and unlabeled pipes, and how you will comply with multi-employer worksite provisions. Uh, the written program must be available upon request, and not only to your employees, but also your designated representatives and any OSHA officials. All right, thanks, Tricia. Now that brings us to mistake number two, and that is not including non-employees in your program. So what's a non-employee? That's somebody like uh, someone who is on a cleaning crew that comes into your facility. You may not necessarily directly employ that person on the cleaning crew. That, that you may have hired a cleaning company to come in and do the work. Um, they're in and out of your facilities but they could be exposed to your hazardous chemicals. And vice versa, your employees could be exposed to the cleaning crew's chemicals. So this is really a question of, you know, do you have a system in place to capture their chemicals in your program and vice versa? Are you able to provide FCSs to those employees? Let's talk about how to fix it. The requirement to address other employers' workers, it's really, just an extension of your own HAZCOM written program. So OSHA says an employer on a multi-employer worksite must include the methods they'll use in their program to provide other employers with on-site access to SDSs. So this covers each hazardous chemical uh, to which the other employer's employees may be exposed. So one employer doesn't have to physically give the other employer the SDSs, but, but has to inform uh, the other employer of the location where the SDSs will be maintained. So employers and multi-employer worksites who do not use hazardous chemicals, but whose employees are exposed to chemicals used by other employers, are required to have a program and train their employees on the hazards of those chemicals in their work areas. The written program must include a list of the hazardous chemicals known to be present in the workplace. So this inventory is basically a list of the chemicals that the employer has to have safety data sheets for. The list must be part of the written program and available to employees so that they can uh, determine what chemicals should be included under the hazard communication program in their workplace. And this list can be maintained by work area or for the workplace as a whole and it must be kept by an identity. Now that product identifier is the identity referenced on the safety data sheet. And it can be a common name. Um, for instance, uh, a product or trade name, something like Windex. Now OSHA specifically defines product identifier as the name or number used for a hazardous chemical on a label or in an FDS. And it provides a unique means by which the user can identify the chemical. The product identifier has to allow cross-references to be made among the list of hazardous chemicals required in the written HAVCOM program and the label and the SDS. Now, you don't have to indicate the hazards of the chemicals on your inventory, but you do need to keep it up to date. All right, and that brings us to mistake number three. 
And that is not creating an effective system for reviewing your chemical inventory and keeping it up to date. Once a complete list of the potentially hazardous chemicals in the workplace has been compiled, then your next step is to determine if an SDS has been received for all of them. So you wanna check files against the inventory list. Employers are required to have SDSs for all hazardous chemicals that they use. If any are missing, contact the supplier and request one. Now, it's a good idea to document these requests. You can either do that by keeping a copy of the letter or the email or a note regarding uh, telephone conversations that you've had. If you cannot show a good faith effort uh, that you made to receive the SDS, then OSHA can issue a citation for not having uh, the SDS for a hazardous chemical. If you find an SDS for chemicals that are not on the inventory list, then you want to figure out why. And there, there could be many reasons for this. You know, you may not be using the chemical anymore. You may have missed it in the survey. Or the SDS could be for a non-hazardous chemical. So, you know, sometimes manufacturers do send SDSs even for non-hazardous products. Um, and if that's the case, just know that you don't have to maintain those for those non-hazardous products. Today's webcast is sponsored by the J.J. Keller Hascom Chemical Safety Management Service. With this new service, get help from J.J. Keller experts to manage your chemical inventory and SDS library, ensure proper labeling and compliance. We can even review and update your written hazard communication program. And we can provide regular recording and communication on your HazCon.com program performance. So, if you'd like more information on the J.J. Keller HazCom Chemical Safety Management Service, let us know by selecting your interest on the poll. And as a thank you, we will email a copy of our brand new compliance brief titled, Hazard Communication, the Right to Know Requirements. All right, and while you're filling out that poll, uh, let's just answer a quick question that came in. Are we required to keep the SDSs from a previous pest control company? The insecticides were only used by the pest control company and we did not keep any on site. So that kind of goes back to that multi-employer uh, area that we had talked about earlier. Um, but in this case now, if your employees were not exposed uh, to an insecticide and uh, you did not keep any on site and they were just, uh, you know, uh, just the employee was using them. And if your employees did not have uh, exposure to those chemicals, then you would not be required to keep the SDSs from a previous pest control company. Also, um, you know, as we talked about, you don't have to have the SDSs for a different company. You just have to be able to have your employees access them if they ask for it. Okay. Moving on, so we're going to talk about how to fix that, uh, that mistake that we had talked about um, for uh, keeping your inventory up to date. And we know that keeping it up to date is much more of a challenge for some companies than for others. If you're a smaller facility or you use relatively few chemicals, maintaining your chemical list may not be much of a challenge. But if you're a larger location and uh, you have hundreds or even thousands of chemicals on the list, keeping that list current can be a significant issue. No matter how large the size of your list, OSHA expects you to keep it current. Now, a few tips on how to keep your list current include reviewing the list on a regular schedule, which should be more frequent if your chemicals change frequently, or that could be done annually if you're a smaller location uh, or if your chemicals stay relatively the same. 
It's important to work with your procurement department or your facilities department or whichever person is in charge of purchasing chemicals for use in your workplace. So you should be part of that decision process. Now, you may be able to influence the purchase of less hazardous chemicals to begin with. Now, that may not keep the product out of your HASCOM program altogether, but it could be beneficial by keeping employees safer. It could require less PPE, and it can help you out a lot when it comes to disposing of that chemical waste. Now, your inventory can be simple. You can keep it as a spreadsheet or a document or a software program, or you can go more sophisticated. We know of several companies that have moved to a barcoding system to help them track the use of their chemicals. Workers scan a barcode on the label when they use the chemical, and that helps the company know when the chemical's been used and may need to be replaced. The electronic information is sent to an electronic inventory, and that keeps the current inventory in real time. Now, other systems we know of include automated stock notifications, uh, notifications for reorders, electronic inventory control systems, and then specific chemical flagging systems. So they can be complicated and expensive, uh, and so you may not want to, to go that expensive. Uh, other tips for keeping your inventory current, you know, include being vigilant about updating the list as soon as new chemicals arrive in your workplace, knowing where the chemicals are located on site, noting the types and sizes of your chemical containers, and then knowing the total amounts of chemicals stored in the workplace. So just to get you thinking, here's a partial list and it's just a partial list, of the types of regulated substances that you could have in your workplace. So that's just something to kind of refer to as you're thinking about updating your list. All right, I'm going to turn things back over to Trisha. Thank you, Lisa. The second most cited HASCOM violation is for paragraph H1. And that requirement is to inform and train employees. Uh, employees are to be trained at the time they are assigned to work with a hazardous chemical. And the intent of this provision is to have the information prior to exposure to prevent injury or illness. So don't delay until a later date. All right, you can provide employees information and training through whatever means are best for them, the employees, uh, but don't just um, give them employee, uh, give the employee any just safety data sheets to read, okay? An employer's training program is to be a forum for explaining to employees not only the hazards of the chemicals in their work area, but also how to use the information generated in the HASCOM program. You can use any format, audiovisuals, classroom instruction, interactive video, online training, and so on, but it should include an opportunity for employees to ask questions to ensure that they understand the information presented to them and include required site-specific information, such as the location and availability of the written program and SDSs. Keep in mind that the training must be conducted in a manner and language that employees can understand. If they receive job instructions in a language other than English, then the training and information must be conveyed under the standard with uh, the same language. If employees have low literacy, you may consider uh, verbal or oral instruction versus just reading documents. Now, there is a letter of interpretation. OSHA says that it is not enough to just complete training. Training must be effective. If training is inadequate and employees don't understand it, OSHA citations must be issued. 
prior to the initial job assignment, each employee who has exposure risks to hazardous chemicals must be provided information and training. So exposure or exposed means that an employee is subjected to a hazardous chemical in the course of employment through any route of entry, uh, including inhalation, ingestion, skin contact, or absorption. OSHA defines an employee as any worker who may be exposed to hazardous chemicals under normal operating conditions of use or in foreseeable emergencies. Normal operating conditions are those which employees encounter in performing their job duties in their assigned work areas. So, for example, if a receptionist in a facility receives and delivers a telephone message for someone in a different work area where hazardous chemicals are present, this does not mean that the receptionist would be covered under the rule by virtue of the one potential exposure from delivering the message. However, if performance of the receptionist's job entails walking through the production area every day and thus being potentially exposed during the performance of regular duties, that job would be covered under the standard. Another example, a housekeeping staff member who is expected to handle cleanup of hazardous substances, such as mercury from a broken thermometer, that cleanup person would be uh, would require training. So if you are unsure somehow if you have a covered employee, it is better to train too many workers rather than too few. And information and training must be done either by individual chemical or by categories of hazards like flammability. If there are only a few chemicals at work, then you may want to discuss each one individually. Where you have a large number of chemicals or the chemicals change frequently, you will probably train more generally based on the hazard categories. But remember that employees will still have access to the substance-specific information on the labels and the SDSs in their work area. When OSHA conducts inspections, they often ask employees whether they know the location of SDSs, if they can list the health effects of chemicals they work with, as well as what to do in an emergency. OSHA has issued citations to employers when employees could not respond properly to the interview questions, even though in some cases the employees had been through documented training. And that's because OSHA consistently holds that training must be effective, not simply completed. Additional training is required whenever a new physical or health hazard is introduced into the work area, not when a new chemical is introduced. So, for example, if a new solvent is brought into the workplace and it has hazards similar to existing chemical hazards for which training has already been conducted, then no new training is required. As with initial training and in keeping with the intent of the standard, the employer in that case must make employees specifically aware of the hazard category, uh, corrosive, irritant, and so forth, that the solvent falls within. Moreover, the substance-specific data sheet must still be available and the product must be properly labeled. On the flip side, as an example, if the newly introduced solvent is a suspect carcinogen and there has never been a carcinogenic hazard in the workplace before, then new training for carcinogenic hazards must be conducted for employees in those work areas where those employees 
will be exposed. One other thing, uh, it is not necessary for the employer to retrain each new hire if that employee has received prior training by a past employer or an employee union or some other entity, but there's a catch. You need to be able to show that this was done, and you must ensure that your employees are adequately trained and equipped with the knowledge and information necessary to conduct their jobs safely. You'll likely still need to go over the or your own site specifics, such as where the SDSs are located, your implant labeling system, and any new chemical hazards to which the employee will be exposed. In fact, OSHA requires that employees be trained on the measures they can take to protect themselves from hazards, including specific procedures uh, for implementing work practices, emergency procedures, and and personal protective equipment to be used. So you, the employer, uh, the, m must evaluate an employee's level of knowledge with regard to the hazards in the workplace, their familiarity with the requirements of the standard, and the employer's own HAZCOM program. For temp workers, generally the staffing agency takes care of the general training requirements for HAZCOM training employees on the types of chemicals they're likely to be encountering during the type of work they're likely to be asked to do. Staffing agencies will also train them on general PPE, uh, how to read safety data sheets, how to read labels, and so forth. The host employer generally takes care of training in the site-specific hazards. The particular chemicals, the temp workers will be exposed to and the particular hazards on the job. And this includes training in what to do in an emergency, how and whether to clean up spills, where to find the safety data sheets, and any in-house labeling system. Now, if you have employees who do special tasks that may expose them to hazardous chemicals, something like doing a, a tank cleanout, that's a non-routine task, then you need to inform them about those chemicals' hazards. You should also inform them about how to control exposures and what to do in an emergency. This also means evaluating the hazards of these tasks and providing appropriate controls, including protective equipment and any additional training as required. You also need to inform employees of the hazards associated with chemicals contained in unlabeled pipes in their work areas. Now, this is kind of interesting. If the pipes are labeled, you don't have to inform them of the chemical hazards in the pipes. So just a kind of a little idiosyncratic part of HAZCOM there. That brings us to mistake number five. So mistake number five is not maintaining copies of SDSs. Now, before we discuss how to fix this one, let's spend a little time going over the requirements for safety data sheets, including maintaining copies of the SDSs for every hazardous chemical, making the SDSs available and accessible to employees, and training employees on how to read them. Unless you're producing hazardous chemicals, you only have to make sure that the safety data sheet is received with the first shipment of a new type of chemical or when that chemical has been reformulated. You need to train your employees on how to read the SDSs, where to find them, when they should consult it, and of course, how to understand it. 
Now, the role of an SDS is to provide detailed information on each hazardous chemical, including its potential hazardous effects, its physical and chemical characteristics, and recommendations for appropriate protective measures. All right, so here's how to fix it. You want to keep a master SDS file and check in each SDS, really keeping track of the revision date. If an SDS is an update of a sheet, then send out a copy to each department that uses the chemical so that they can update their departmental SDS file. If an SDS is for a new chemical, then send copies to each department that will use it. And then also monitor the SDSs within each department. You know, sheets get torn out or smudged uh, and, and need to be replaced sometimes. Have a cover sheet listing what the SDSs are in the file, along with a revision number. A supervisor can easily then weekly or monthly check to see if all the SDSs are there and readable. And just be sure to replace missing data sheets uh, as soon as you notice they're missing or need updating. Now, you may no longer use a specific chemical in your facility, um, but OSHA states that you have to keep some record of employee exposure to a chemical. SDSs are considered exposure records. Now, you don't need to retain paper or electronic copies of old SDSs as long as you have a record of employee exposure to the products that were used. And that could be the identity, the substance, the agent, uh, when it was used, and that you retain that record for 30 years. Now, SDSs could be part of that record for you. Those regulations, if you want to check them, can be found in 1910.1020, paragraph D1. In order to ensure that an employer has a current SDS for each chemical and that employee access is provided, OSHA looks at the, the information that we have here on your screen. Now, note number three on this list. What do you do if you didn't receive an SDS and you should have? You're entitled to receive an SDS for each chemical product that you purchase. And if you don't receive it, you should request it from the manufacturer or your distributor. If you don't receive one, and, uh, or if you do receive one that's obviously inadequate, say it contains blank spaces where it shouldn't, then you'll need to request uh, a, an appropriately completed one. If your request for a data sheet or a corrected data sheet goes unanswered within a reasonable amount of time, and OSHA says 30 days, give or take, is a reasonable amount of time, uh, then you should contact the local area office for assistance in obtaining those SDSs. The safety data sheet contains all the elements you see on this slide. So there are 16 sections on the SDS. Now the really important areas for employees to understand are the sections on what health effects or exposure to the chemical could be. What should they watch out for? Should they suspect they've been exposed to a chemical if they have difficulty breathing or if they get a rash? Employees will learn from the SDS if the chemical requires special precautions, um, something like not exposing it to water, or to heat, or you know, can this chemical handle rough treatment, or do you have to be really careful with it? Another good area is knowing the firefighting measures, um, especially knowing, you know, do you need to have a standard portable fire extinguisher uh, to put that, that out, or do you need a special kind of extinguisher? Now, one reason OSHA requires SDSs to be readily available and accessible to, to employees 
is so that they can quickly find emergency and first aid procedures if they've been exposed to the chemical. So do they need to get employee uh, medical attention as quickly as possible? Do they have to flush their eyes or their skin within a certain amount of time and for a certain amount of time? Uh, or is, is washing with soap and water appropriate? They need to know all of those things relatively quickly. Knowing the recommended spill containment methods can help employees avoid injury if there's been a spill or release. Can they simply soak up or sweep up a spill? Or do they need to apply a neutralizing agent first? And the SDS will tell them all of those things. Um, and, and then handling and storage. That's important to help employees know when they should avoid using the chemical with other chemicals. Uh, for instance, you know, an SDS for a cleaner containing bleach will certainly caution against combining the cleaner with ammonia. Those are all areas um, on that safety data sheet that employees should know about. There are special exceptions for retailers and warehouses. So if under normal conditions of use, employees do not open sealed containers of hazardous chemicals, and that would be in something like a warehouse or in a retail store, in that case, you need only maintain the FCSs that are sent with incoming shipments. If an employee requests an FCS and it's not available, then you do have to contact the manufacturer and request one. Really, the primary difference here uh, with the rest of the, the HASCOM program is that the warehouse or retail store does not have to maintain complete files of data sheets. So that simplifies the paperwork for operations where hundreds of different chemicals pass through but are, are never opened or worked with. All right, and I'm going to pass it back to Tricia. Thank you, Lisa. So it is not enough to have and just keep SDSs. They must also be available to employees. And this means employees should not have to go through too many steps to access them. OSHA requires that SDSs be readily accessible to all affected workers during each work shift when they are in their work area. If any barriers to immediate access to SDSs exist, then the employer is not complying with the standard. So there are some factors to look at, uh, whether employees have to ask an, a supervisor for the SDS. If they do, that is a violation. Consider whether employees can access the SDSs during each work shift and in each work area. Consider whether employees have to be trained or have been trained, excuse me, on how to access SDSs and whether employees know who they can go to if they have questions. As long as employees can get the information when they need it, any approach may be used to providing access to SDSs. Some employers keep the SDSs in a binder in a central location or have a binder for each work area, such as maintenance, manufacturing, and so on. At a construction site, a binder might be kept in a job trailer. Other employers, particularly in workplaces with large numbers of chemicals, provide access electronically. But be careful, if employees don't understand how to use the electronic equipment to get at the SDS, the SDS is considered not readily accessible. If you maintain SDSs on a company website or with an off-site web-based SDS service provider that provides them electronically, Ensure that all employees have adequate access with no restrictions. Uh, ensure there is a backup procedure or system in place in case the system is not functioning. 
ensure the employees are trained on how to access the SDSs both on the computer and the backup system, and ensure you have a procedure or backup in place to ensure that employees can receive a hard copy if so desired and in cases of emergency. It is not acceptable to only transmit the information verbally. In the event of a medical emergency, hard copy SDSs must be immediately available to medical personnel. There must be an adequate backup system for rapid access to SDSs in the event of power outages, equipment failures, or other system failure. If there is an off-site SDS service uh, that manages SDSs, remember that all shifts must have SDSs readily accessible. This means that employees must be able to contact the service and receive a faxed or hard copy of the requested SDS during their work period. If they cannot, the employer may need to maintain copies at the facility. Um, if there is more than one distinct work area or location where hazardous chemicals are present, the employer may need a set of SDSs for each work area. Uh, and where employees must travel between workplaces during the work shift, SDSs may be stored at the primary workplace instead of a mobile, remote, or temporary work site as long as there are no restrictions to workers' access. And if the SDSs in that case are stored at the primary workplace, the employer must ensure there is no delay in a worker receiving a requested SDS while at any remote, uh, mobile, or temporary work site. OSHA's HASCOM standard requires the use of GHS-style labels for shipping containers of hazardous chemicals. Uh, the labeling elements, there are six of them uh, for shipping. Uh, there, one that's most cited is the product identifier, and this could mean it's missing or incorrect, and the product identifier is the name or number used for the hazardous chemical product, and it ties the label to the chemical's SDS, which contains more extensive information. Other elements of the GHS style label are listed on this slide. And for the t because we are running low on time, I'm going to just um, skip over the definitions. Those definitions are found um, or described in the regulation. The, if you do choose to use a GHS style in-plant or in-house label on containers of hazardous chemicals, you are not required to include the name, address, and phone number of the responsible party. But that responsible party information is required for a shipped label. Be aware of that. Now, for in-plant labeling, there is the allowance for an alternative labeling system. Uh, but that alternative must include the product identifier and words, pictures, or symbols that convey general information regarding the physical or health hazards of the chemical. Now, ge that general information must be supported by specific hazard information in your written HASCOM program. And the, the slide here does list a number of uh, tips, I guess, for compliance with the shipping and in-plant labeling uh, provisions of the standard. Please do take a look at this at a later time. Okay, uh, GHS-style pictograms are shown here. They are black inside a red border, but um, uh, for in-plant uh, purposes, they may have a black border. Uh, each pictogram has a specific meaning, and 
by the way, OSHA does not have authority over environmental issues. And so the one in the bottom row in the middle, that environmental pictogram, is not required by OSHA. Uh, Appendix C of the regulation tells you which pictogram to use for which hazard class. And uh, it is allowed or acceptable to add other symbols. You know, you have your GHS style pictogram, but you want to add another symbol for PPE, for example. That is acceptable by OSHA. Lisa. Thanks, Tricia. All right. This to our very last mistake we'll be talking about today, and that is not relabeling containers when required. And this is one of those areas that uh, we expect OSHA may be addressing in that proposed rule. Um, so just know employers are never required under HASCOM to relabel already properly labeled containers. But there are several situations where relabeling may be required. And that is, you know, if you received a quantity of a chemical and you want to break it down into smaller containers, if a label falls off or becomes unreadable, or if you want to relabel them for a company-wide labeling system. So in those cases, you would want to relabel. Now, when an employee fills a portable container with a chemical from a labeled container, and that same employee uses the substance within one work shift, OSHA doesn't require that temporary use container to be labeled. Now, Problems arise, though, if the shift ends and there's still material left in the portable container, or if another employee needs to use that container or substance instead of just that one employee. Um, so when those, because that kind of thing comes up a lot, a lot of employers do require labeling of the portable containers uh, to avoid those kind of issues. And just remember that, you know, before the chemical can be passed along to another employee or for another shift, that container does have to be labeled. There are uh, other systems. Uh, there's the HACCOM rule does allow uh, shipped containers to conform or requires shipped containers to conform to the GHS style labeling system. And OSHA does still allow employers to use their own workplace labeling systems, such as HMIS or NFPA for in-house labeling. Other labeling requirements are that they have to be legible in English, um, or if you have uh, workers who speak another language as their best language, um, you know, use that language too. Uh, you have to revise within, uh, with significant changes within six months, and then just make sure not to remove or deface existing labels unless uh, you're also making sure they're marked with the required information. Thank you, Lisa. So uh, we have danger and warning as the signal words that are allowed. Uh, only one signal word is allowed on the label. The, uh, also be aware that um, employee exposure to toxic air emissions uh, from welding, forklifts, power tools, you name it. Employees need to be aware of that, be aware of carbon monoxide hazards. But the SDSs are not required to be provided for vehicles, like forklifts, tractors, or automobiles. SDSs are required for the fuel, uh, the gasoline, what, or whatnot. Um, all right. One more slide here. And before we get to questions, uh, this brings us to the end of our presentation, so pay attention to the areas listed on the slide, and I think you will be in good shape.
All right, so let's move on to those questions. Uh, just quick, uh, let's address one that came in about our new HAZCOM Safety Management Service. So this service provides support and guidance for these core areas of your HAZCOM program that are listed here on this slide. So again, if you'd like more information on the J.J. Keller HAZCOM Chemical Safety Management Service, let us know by selecting your interest on this next poll here. And again, as a thank you, we'll email our copy of our brand new compliance brief, Hazard Communication, the Right to Know Requirements. So, Alan, did you have any questions for us? Oh, no. First, I was going to say thank you both for this fantastic and insightful presentation. And before that, we start the q and I want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The uh, survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve our future webcast. And we have gotten quite a few questions throughout this presentation, so, so thank you all for that. And we will get to our first question here. Um, this is a pretty relevant one for this time. This is for Lisa. Uh, does the use of disinfectants for COVID cleaning overrule the consumer product exemption? Oh, great. That's a great question. Um, no, uh, you know, you're going to have to look at uh, the, the, how you're using the chemicals that the employees are exposed to. Um, are they using it like a consumer? Um, or are, are, is it more of an occupational exposure kind of thing? I think maybe in, you know, a hospital setting, um, you know, where your employees are being exposed to those chemicals, uh, you know, all day long, um, that's going to be different than if you have employees who are just, you know, using them uh, when they're going into the lunchroom or something like that. Trisha, did you want to add anything to that? I'm sorry, I was pouring over the questions. Could you repeat um, what, <laughs> what you just said? Something about disinfectants, I think. Yeah, so, you know, with COVID, COVID-19, does uh, that play a role in, you know, the, the consumer uh, exception in, in health? Oh, sure. Um, all right, so disinfectant um, and COVID. Um, you know, I guess you're going to have to weigh whether you're using the disinfectant in a frequency and duration of an ordinary consumer or whether that's more than a consumer. And I would imagine if someone's cleaning all sorts of desks with disinfectant and whatnot, more, that's going, likely going to be more frequent. It's kind of a subjective decision to make. Um, I'm sorry, it can't be more like decisive on that yes or no, but that's what I have, and that's the definition really of a uh, consumer product that is not exempt is one that is in uh, greater duration and frequency than an ordinary consumer, okay? Well, speaking of uh, COVID-related products, um, hand sanitizer, is that exempt from the HASCOM standard? Well, uh, again, yeah, good, good question, Alan. Um, so we're taking a look again at 1910.1200B6 and looking at those exemptions. And interestingly, for hand sanitizer, um, it is, it is, uh, we want to consider whether it's a, an exempt drug or whether it's an exempt consumer product. So the FDA does say that hand sanitizers are an over-the-counter drug. And, but OSHA's drug exemption includes, among other things, um, 
uh, exempting drugs packaged for sale to consumers in a retail establishment and drugs for personal consumer or cons consummation by employees while at work. So you, you kind of got to weigh that and whether that exemption would work for you or, again, that consumer product exemption. Is the hand sanitizer um, being used in a duration and frequency more than an ordinary consumer? Um, if, if it is, then it is not exempt. If it is a little more like the ordinary consumer, then it would be exempt. I hope that makes sense. Thank you, Alan. Seems to make sense to me. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Um, for the bus example at the beginning, um, was that organization cited because of lack of training on PPE, labeling? What should the training have been per HASCOM? This is for Lisa. Oh, um, so that's a great question. Um, so OSHA, uh, you know, requires you to train on the chemical exposures uh, under HASCOM. And my understanding is in that example, the uh, bus company had not actually trained employees at all, um, not considering that um, they were being exposed to a chemical or occupationally exposed to a chemical. So I believe in that case, no training at all had been required. Um, but you just have to make sure that you know, you're following uh, all the different areas of HASCOM and training employees on on how to protect themselves from uh, chemical exposures, how to read SDSs, where to find them, um, you know, what protective measures to take, all of those things. Right, and I would add to that that HASCOM is, is about relaying the information that employees need to know through labels, through safety data sheets, through training, and that sort of thing. It's not, a, it's not literally about the exposure. That might be an entirely different regulation to look at. HASCOM is about did they train? Did they provide the safety data sheets? Did they uh, provide or have the proper labeling? And in this case, the training was at fault. Okay? Good point, Tricia. Well, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback through our survey. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Lisa Newberger, Trisha Hodkovich, uh, our sponsor, J.J. Keller, and, of course, everyone who joined us today. Take care and be safe.